Alien Invasions, Elderly Vigilantes and Visions of the Afterlife. Welcome to South London Hardcore with me, your host, Stephen Walsh. And me, Jack McInroy. So this week, Steve, we're going a bit midnight video, talking about some movies, Southwark Estates on screen being the theme. That's right. And midnight video being a podcast we both very much enjoy it by our friends Phil Walsh and Jim Hall. Phil Walsh, no relation, but he is like my brother from another mother. And Jim Hall, also no relation. And I'm indifferent to him, to be honest. <laughs> no, uh, Jim, uh, Jim my, I've got a South London connection to Jim in that, uh, well, you've uh, tagged along as well, haven't you? Uh, myself and Jim are frequent visitors to the Peckinplex with their wonderful uh, £5 all day any film offer. Never mind the uh, dents in the middle of the screen. I don't want to uh, diss the Pepper Bets because generally I'm a very big fan of it. I love the value. But we went to see, myself and Jim went to see The Artist a couple of weeks ago. And we're watching the adverts and Jim realised that the screen was uh, not showing the whole uh, picture. Wherever no, the projections um, are done. The Artist is a different aspect ratio. Oh, no, no. But the actual uh, projection uh, oh. was, was like cutting off the bottom. Oh, uh, no. So... Uh, Jim spotted it and had a word with the people, and they said, uh, "Yeah, no, we'll uh, we'll find them." And it was luckily it was while the adverts were on, and it, they managed. It was really odd. It was like a sort of like edgy seat thing where all the adverts were coming up, and it was all over the place. And then just as the um, what would the the title card, whoever it is, you know the yeah uh, the BBFC thing, there you go, that one popped up. It sort of flipped to the correct thing, and Boom. you realise half the people in the cinema sort of went, "Oh." <laughs> that I hadn't noticed that the screen was like a. a They're good not screen. as uh, eagle-eyed as Jim Jim Hall. Though, He's a cinephile. Jim Hall knows if half the screen's uh, being projected. I thought he was before. a cinephobe. <laughs> a bit of both. A bit of both. But yeah, midnight video um, is a podcast. One of a handful of podcasts I listen to every week or every two weeks, as it is now. Um, highly recommend it. Talk about obscure uh, and cult films. Really, most of them I haven't seen, but always entertaining. Whether I've seen them, I'm watching more films than I ever have. Because of Midnight Video. Well, the thing is, I wouldn't go so far as to recommend people watch the films they cover on Midnight Video because they're generally awful. <laughs> this is the, I'm always fascinated because if they love something, I'm like, that sounds great, I've got to watch it. And if they hate something, I'm like, can it be that? And you just, you just yeah, it's always that. fascinating. Yeah, it? it's always um, they're curios, aren't they? Mostly the films. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, no, um, for me as well, uh, it's it, it's a sort of podcast where with a lot of podcasts, I sort of remember them from time to time and listen to them. Midnight video comes out. I'm on it. Subscribe to it. I'm, I'm waiting for it. Yeah. No, I, I don't subscribe to it. Actually, I, I probably should. Subscribe, I? man. Yeah. Helps the numbers in it. And subscribe to this, listeners. <laughs> nice link. Now, before you say another word, he was using it as protection. I mean, that that man, he was frightened, terrified. These kids on the estate, they were harassing him. He came to me and asked me for help. I said, Why don't you go and talk to the police? Well, that was the right thing to do. Oh, was it? He told me to talk to the police, and what did you lot do? Nothing. Haygate Estate was uh, opened in 1974. Uh, the architect was a man called Tim Tinker, which is a great name for an architect, isn't it? What is a tinker? A tinker is someone who makes uh, saucepans and bowls. They basically, they're metal workers, but working in sort of creating domestic products. Morphe Richards was a tinker. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like the idea of an architect called Tim Tinker. I, I don't know if I'd live in his house. Do you know what I mean? The idea of, uh, you know, a famous dude like Claudio Ranieri, obviously recently in football, the idea of a, a tinker man mm. is someone that isn't, that isn't really sure what they're doing. If you tinker with something, 
you're not a specialist, are you? That's the, the sort of the modern. You're suggesting now. that uh, he was working on the Haygate for uh, for years. <laughs> Hang on a minute, just change that stairwell. Well, I just yeah, or him sort of going. Uh, I forgot ceilings. We'll need ceilings, and then he's got to go back to his original blueprint. But they, you know, uh, he got it, got it designed, and got it made. Um, Tim Tinker uh, is part of an architectural school of uh, neo brutalists. Oh. So we're revisiting uh, some other infamous or famous South London architecture. All about brutalism, aren't we, on this podcast? It's, it's brutal. It is brutal. South London architecture is brutal. It's either brutal or neo-brutal. The Haygate has, over the last few years, become uh, essentially a film set, hasn't it? A mecca. <laughs> well, it's just this thing where they've, they've cleared it out. They've emptied it, left the buildings there, um, and it's just perfect. It's When's just it going to be torn cool. down? It's already been started, is it? Well, they're talking 2015 now. That's yeah. It was supposed to be it's supposed to be gone by now. But controlled I, demolition, man. Just get it done. Well, I think the thing is, uh, I've got a theory. Um, between two thousand seven two thousand ten, seventy six productions have taken place on the Haygate, making Southwark Council ninety one thousand pounds. Oh well, there you go. So they either knock it down and then they're forced to spend money building new social housing, or they just leave this giant film set up and just get people to come along and give them money to uh, let him film on it. Well, it's built, Steve, to a point where Brad Pitt recently filmed on there. My favourite actor of all time, Brad Pitt. Uh, you, World you, I remember, War Z. Yeah, I remember you uh, were outraged. You were, oh. Your take on it was, Brad Pitt was on the uh, on the Hager and no one told me. Like, you should have got a text alert there was, I got I saw an update um, on um, Facebook or somewhere and it was a link to an, ad, um, an article on a news website and it said Brad Pitt filming in Peckham on the uh, Haygate. It's not in Peckham, is it? It's in Bournemouth. <laughs> and why did no It's not even it? particularly close to Peckham. No. Nah. It's just short Peckham. What is Peckham shorthand for South East London? You've got Campbell in between. You've got a whole buffer zone of uh, another area. But yeah, World War Z comes out in January or February 2013. I'm quite excited about it. I, I couldn't be a bigger Brad Pitt fan. He's just like literally my favourite actor. And to think that I missed him in Bournemouth. Another of my favourite actors is Clint Eastwood, and in 2009 he made Hereafter on the Haygate Estate and on Westmoreland Road, which again, I missed it. (laughs) Oh yeah, yesterday Clint Eastwood was on Westmoreland Road. What? And I went to, uh, you know, Samico on the corner of Westmoreland Road. Used to be a little little electronic shop. Used to go there all the time to buy like um, audio adapters and blank videos and stuff. Um, it's opposite TD's Sports on uh, Wolf yeah. Road, and they uh, fil- they converted it to a chemist for the film. And if you go there now, still you know two or three years on, they've still got kind of it still says like uh, whatever blah 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 pharmacy. It's still got stickers on the window wherever they've kind of where it was a pharmacy set. You I took some photos at the time, expecting hereafter to be a cracking film. <laughs> and uh, how'd that work out for you? Not great, is it? <laughs> um, it's just a shame, really, that in 2009 you hadn't popped down to Samico to pick up some blank videos, isn't it? It all could have been so different. Well, it had been closed and abandoned for a couple of years already. You go past and there's still the same Hoover bags and AAA <laughs> batteries sitting in the window covered in dust that there had been when the shop closed. I'm sure, I think maybe the guy died. All right. And I don't know. It was just one guy. I think his name was Sam. Okay. And it was his co. And That scans, it, doesn't it? It does, yeah. But it closed down one day and never, it eventually sprung up in a Clint Eastwood film. Yeah, the whole uh, Clint Eastwood thing, I mean, the thing about Hereafter for me as a film overall is 
It's directed by Clint Eastwood, who, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right, has won Oscars for directing films. Yeah, well, with, with Clint Eastwood, it, his directorial work is a real mixed bag. He's made some brilliant films, Unforgiven, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby. I haven't seen Letters from Iwo Jima, but that's supposed to be very good as well. Yeah. But he's also made some real rubbish, you know, blood work, <laughs> absolute power. I haven't seen Space Cowboys either, but by all accounts, it's Why really rubbish. Why would you? Yeah, exactly. So he's an odd one where he, he's sort of capable of putting a good film out, but very capable of putting a terrible film out. But then, if you add that, add into the mix, the script is by Peter Morgan. Yeah. Who, I don't know if he's won awards, but he's very well regarded. Yeah, I think so. You'd imagine he has. Oh, he's won, some, he's won various things. He's been Oscar nominated, at least, I would suggest. Yeah. But yeah, he's sort of one of the premier British screenwriters. So you'd imagine, if you've got Clint Eastwood directing a Peter Morgan script, you know, that is going to give it some sort of some energy. Then, in terms of cast, you go, Matt Damon's in it. And again, you know, mixed bag in terms of... No, Matt Damon's really good. He's, he's quality, yeah, he's but good. it's not a guarantee that the film's going to be great. You no, know, it's, no. That, that's, but again, you'd imagine, if you say, right, Clint Eastwood's directing it, Peter Morgan's in the script, Matt Damon's in it, You'd say, okay, well, those three people aren't going to come together and make something terrible. No, and they, yet, did, they, they definitely did. did. Yeah, it's, it's awful. Magic. Great work from yeah. them where they've managed to just pull out this. And it's funny, when you say to people, uh, you know, watch this for the show, and I say to people, have you seen a film called Hereafter? And they've never heard of no, it. No, no one's ever heard of it. And it's amazing that a film, as I say, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Peter Morgan, starring Matt Damon, got no publicity. It's almost like the, the production company. Oscar nominated, did you know that? What? Is Oscar nominated for visual effects? Oh, I yeah. did read this, and it was up against Inception. Oh yeah, Inception one did it. Yeah, yeah, Inception one. No, but the the tsunami at the beginning is great. Isn't it? This is a really really at good the start. Film. I thought this looks yeah, yeah, it's a real good start, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. So what it is? It starts with uh, this. It is the tsunami, presumably. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it seems to tap into actual events because uh, I didn't realise as well, you know, the, the scene later in the film with the uh, the tube station incident with the, the young boy yeah. is supposed to be the London bombings. Yeah, that, that was a bit, that was kind of ambiguous, wasn't it? But also unnecessary. I was hoping it wasn't the real thing because it didn't thing, really it merit using the 7-7 bombing. It doesn't need to, does it? The, no. And that's the thing with the, the tsunami as well, it doesn't need to tap into a specific incident, does it? But the basic story, um, this woman um, and her husband are on holiday in, where is it, Indonesia? Yeah. Uh, Thailand? Yeah. Indonesia? I don't know, but yeah. Well, wherever it was, wherever that tsunami happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, their daughter gets killed in the tsunami. And then you cut to sort of London. Their daughter gets killed? Did their daughter, their daughter drown? I don't think they had a daughter. Who's the girl who drowns? She's the stallholder's daughter, isn't she? Isn't she? Oh, okay. I've got to be honest. (laughs) It was was the first two minutes, isn't it? You sort of, they're walking along, she's holding, did she not hold hand with a girl? Yeah. Whatever. She goes, uh, she's in the hotel with the husband, she goes out to buy some um, souvenirs. And when she's at the stall, the souvenir, the the storeholder's daughter is wearing a bracelet and she buys, and then when the tsunami hits, she grabs the girl to Uh, save her. Yeah. And can't, she drowns. Yeah. Um, and then she has a she dies for a couple of minutes and she or whatever yeah, and yeah. then eventually well the uh, guys try and revive her yeah and, and they play like but she's then she coughs all the water up and she lives yeah but she's in the meantime she has a vision of you know she's seen the other side yeah mm. um, and then you cut to London where you've got these two twin brothers and I don't want to spoil it too much but they've got a, a deadbeat mum haven't they yeah social workers come round. You know, they're kind of... But the boys have got a system. It's yeah, whole, exactly. Yeah. It's this tired cliche of the mm. kids being better. You know, 
another point about the kids, and it's, I don't want to sound cruel, but I'm going to sound oh, cruel. Oh, gosh, yeah. The, the boy uh, who goes to the chemist in like the key scene at the start is possibly the worst actor yeah. And, you know, it is bad. It, it, I was thinking that. Particular, I was rewatching that scene know, this morning. Yeah, and it, it is bad. Yeah, you, it, you just look. He looks like there's a guy walking in front of him, three yards, holding up a board. There's a bit where he's talking on the phone. He's like, yeah. in Samica. <laughs> he, he goes. Uh, it's like, hopefully, mum will get better. Then we can have a real life yeah. with a proper family. He's <laughs> syllable by syllable, and mm. you know, I'm uh, w- at his age. I can't imagine. Being an actor, there's so many sort of qualified you can point at. But anyway, he is, and he would have. Well, this, you know, Clint Eastwood is famous for doing things in one take, or at least a minimal amount of sex and moving on. And you've got to feel like his heart was not in it at some point in this film. He also he must have realised early on that it was rubbish. He also doesn't audition people or doesn't watch auditions because Jay Moore on his podcast was saying that. Yeah, well, Jay Moore's in it, isn't he? Um, yeah, Jay yeah. Moore uh, being an American stand-up comedian who was in most famously in Jerry Maguire as uh, Bob Sugar, the uh, agent who's Tom Cruise's nemesis. He auditioned. He sent a videotape, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Jay Moore, um, give us an opportunity just to big up Jay Moore's podcast. More yeah, stories. let's talk about another podcast that we enjoy. Better than Midnight Video. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's my favourite podcast. I listen to it every week. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, he, you know, has these guests. It doesn't really matter who the guest is. People, no. you've, you have, they're kind of American stand-up comedians mostly that, that are not household names in England. And I w- I've not heard of most of them. But it's always just a real entertaining uh, show. Highly recommend it. He's not very good in this. I mean, no one is, but he... No, one no, where... no, he's not, is he? He doesn't really get... Uh, he doesn't elevate himself above the script. But the, no. the script is just so bad, isn't it? But that's the thing, it's the sort of thing, when Jay Moore talks about his work, I, I thought, oh, at least he'll be something to look forward to. But it's so flat, all of it mm, is so everything, flat. Everything, yeah. Uh, he plays uh, Matt Damon's brother, Matt Damon being uh, a psychic who has given up being a psychic because of uh, all the pain that entails. Do you know why he's given up? Because it's a curse, not a gift. You think it's a yeah. gift, everyone thinks it's a gift, it's a curse. And I, I got so sick of that. The, the first time it happened, I was like, all right, we get it, it's, it's a curse, not a gift. Okay, that's going to be the whole point to all the things. Well, the, thing, the whole the theme that runs through it is sort of that there's nonsense psychics, but then there's also <laughs> real psychics, and he's a real psychic. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of nonsense psychics in it. They go to these psychic readings, and people are sort of faking again. Oh, is it a, is it a girl? Yeah. Is it, I'm hearing the name Julia. You know, um... But no, Matt Damon, he's the real deal. I mean, it's just an ab- absolutely whole, substanceless, isn't it? That's the thing about the film, isn't it? The whole point of it, essentially, is uh, people look for answers in the wrong places. But as long as you find a genuine psychic, all your problems are gone. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you can't... I don't know what drama can be predicated on that, really. Thanks, Peter mm-hmm. Morgan. It's really no, just, it's just a, a mess, isn't it? The whole thing is a mess. And it just doesn't really go anywhere, does it? He meets this um, girl and he's doing a cookery class with her. Yeah. She's got a dead relative. You know, she wants him to do a reading. Blah, 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 blah. Well, even and it just that, sort of it just sort of ends. Well, even with that, though, uh, he does a reading for her and finds out that her father molested her as a child. And the thing is, at the start, when he says, I'll do a reading, he's like, this always ends badly. Mm-hmm. And she's like laughing and joking, going, it'll be fine. And then he finds out that her father molested her. And he tells her and reduces her to tears and she leaves the apartment and sort of breaks down and goes. And it's horrible. But I was all I was thinking while I was watching it was, uh, right, fair enough, 
we understand it's a curse, not a gift, and you're going to see these things. Your power is to see these things. Your power isn't, I've definitely got to tell her that I know that I don't her. I was like watching and just don't say it, do you? Mm. Just don't say that you know this thing. That's the, the curse is on you then. Don't share the pain with everyone. Yeah, we're not recommending this one, are we? No. I mean, and the thing is as well, it, even if it was uh, dull and bland, all these things, you can sort of go, right, fine. But the, 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 it's there's one terrible moment where um, at the start, one of the awful gimmicks that they give the characters is Matt Damon can't sleep unless he listens to Derek Jacoby reading uh, Charles mm. Dickens novels <laughs> and again when the girl comes round he's got a picture of Dickens on the wall and she's like who's that guy is that your granddaddy because that's Charles Dickens <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah that's yeah. funny man. but they establish very firmly Matt Damon's character if, he, if there's one thing you need to know about him the guy loves Charles Dickens all he does is listen to Charles Dickens mm. think about Charles Dickens so when he comes to London he goes to Charles Dickens house and uh, there's a walking tour and the guide is taking him around the house and she's showing him the room. There's a, in, in Dickens' study, there's a picture on the wall and she's like, ask this rhetorical question. Does anyone know what this is called? Matt Damon mutters to himself, Dickens' dream. Because he knows. Because this guy, if there's one thing he needs to know about him, he's a Dickens fan. He loves Dickens. The woman who's Dick, doing Dick, the... Dick, 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 Dickens. <laughs> the woman doing the tour riding, you'd imagine, would also be a bit of a fan of Dickens. Anyone on the tour would be a fan of Dickens. So as they're going through the house, uh, she says... This is the desk that Dickens was using when he was writing his final novel, uh, The Mystery of Edward Drood. And the first thing that struck me was, and I'm not a Dickens expert, I like Dickens. You're not a Dickens expert? Nah, I'm definitely not a Dickens, not an expert, am I? Of course not. I'm not, I'm not qualified to do a walking tour of his home. I haven't got a portrait of him up in my house. I, I've read a few of his books, I like him, he's good. But I know that his final book was called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. No, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. And I'm watching this going... Overdub it. Well, but this is my thing. I was like, I, I thought, I've misheard that. I've, there's no way. So I rewind it five times. Every time I'm expecting it to go... Oh, Edwin, Edwin, Edwin. And I was like... The, the great thing was as well, like, even if you're ignoring the fact that these people in the film would know it, you'd imagine in real life on the set, at least one person... Because it's not general knowledge, but I've done, it's enough that people would recognise yeah. one person on a busy film set is going to spot that and go... That's Edwin Drew, isn't it? But the thing is, though, it happens off off camera, right? So I suspect it, it might have just been it might have been two people in the studio recording it. ADR. See, I, I like the idea that if it was Kevin Smith or Steven Spielberg directing the film, <laughs> someone would go, "Sorry, Kevin and or Steve, yeah, yeah. it's actually Edwin Drew." But if it's Dirty Harry. You ain't going out to nah. because you because you're basically going. You didn't spot that. Well, there's like Jay, I can't remember his exact story now, but Jay Moore was talking about on his podcast. I don't know if you've got up to this episode yet. Um, he has a little scene where um, it just cuts to him and a neighbour gives him a note from his brother. Oh uh, right, to say like that uh, for yeah. them to say that he's wrong. Um, you know, he's not going to be starting as a psychic again. Yeah. He's gone back to England or wherever he's gone. And uh, apparently the woman really overplayed the scene. Like, you know, she's <laughs> giving Jane Moore this note and she's really overdone it. And Clint Eastwood just sort of laid right into her in front of everyone. It's Dirty Harry, isn't it? Yeah, don't, exactly. Don't mess around. And this is I was trying to think, if I was on set, would I have the, the guts to turn around and go, it's Edwin Drews, we're going to have to do that again. Because you're telling Clint Eastwood yeah, that he needs to have taken it. He would appreciate that, I think. I think so, yeah. But it was just, and it was just things like that where I was like, it's not even correct forget about the quality it's not even like you know getting basic factual things right bizarre on a related note um, I think Lakeisha told you last week actually 
Um, I used to have a framed picture of Armand Leonard up in the house, yeah. and someone in Lakeisha's family said, "Is that Jack's granddad?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, my granddad was black." <laughs> well, the first thing that drew me was Clint. I mean, I you know, I, I do the phone book with the guy. He's had all he can take, and he can't take no more. Michael Caine is Harry Brown. So Michael Caine, being from the Elephant and Castle, obviously left the Elephant and Castle well before the Haygate was built. Yeah, went back a couple of years ago to the Haygate and made Harry Brown. Which is a better film than Hereafter. But it is. It's still not a good film, is it? I think Sensationalist <laughs> would be. It's um, quite incredible to watch in every sense of the word, isn't it? Where I was watching it and I was like, if that was your life, you wouldn't get up in the morning, let alone go nah. out, would you? No, nah, to set the scene, um, it's sort of Yob Britain, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Broken Britain. Yeah. And, you know, Michael uh, Caine plays Harry Brown, an old fella, ex-Marine. Him and his mate, they sit in the pub. He's miserable because his wife's got, um, I was going to say, autism. <laughs> what, what's the word <laughs> I'm looking for? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. Right, Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. And then she dies, you know, early on in the film. Yeah. And they're basically, old people are terrorised by, uh, by the youths, basically. And one of the key things that comes up in the film, and they just hammer it home, is there's an underpass, isn't there? that was the quickest way to get in and out of the estate, but he can't use it because of... And they said it up two or three times, he can't use it because like, it's just populated by uh, feral youth. <laughs> so eventually, when he gets to Corbin Hospital and his wife is going, uh, he uh, comes out, and if uh, you, you, it's sort of hammered home that if he uses the underpass, he gets there in time. And because he can't use the underpass, he misses it. And he, by the time I he didn't gets actually there, pick up on that. Yeah, he gets to the hospital mm-hmm. and like, yeah, so there's this, it's, it's so overplayed. He comes out, looks at the underpass and then just shuffles it around. And then by the time he gets to the hospital, it's a classic, uh, looks into her room and the bed is freshly made up. Yeah. Anyway, it's a cliche. Yeah. I'm afraid of cliche. That's, no. that's one word. You, but my thing was, even with that, I was like, okay, that's supposed to like establish the drama and the conflict and the character and whatnot. But what you're telling me is, he missed out on a chance to watch his wife die. <laughs> it's not. It's not like he's yeah. got these Jews have denied him that. This is the. He, if he hasn't got the, you know, anti-Alzheimer's medicine that's going to save her, he just doesn't get. There's nothing. Nothing changes, is it? He hasn't got the antidote. This is the thing. So nothing's going to change if he uses the underpass, except for the fact he's there when she dies. And I don't know. Maybe that would be important to him, but it just seemed really odd as a sort of uh, dramatic device. Yeah, the opening scene of the film is extraordinary and it's hilarious, right? <laughs> it starts off, um, it's all shot on like a camera phone. Um, yeah. And it's quite um, visceral, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's you know, there's kids doing recreational drugs, presumably in that underpass. Yeah. Um, and, and filming it on their phones. And like, you know, we are living in a day and age where people film things on their phones and sometimes people commit heinous acts and film on their phones. Yeah. You know. Happy slapping, you know, it, it's overplayed, isn't it, obviously? But it has happened. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, there were videos um, apparently going up. You know, that guy who got killed on Oxford Street. Um, That's right, yeah. A that month was... or two ago. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, people filming it and putting it up. I mean, that maybe isn't quite the same thing. No. But, you know, it's kind of, you know, that's a kind of, that is a, a thing now, isn't it? Filming yeah. things on your phone. But, um, you know, so they're doing drugs. Next thing you know, there's someone on a moped. They're, dry, they're going through Burgess Park on a moped, right? <laughs> Um, with, shoot, a gun, yeah, with a gun shooting a gun at a woman pushing a pram for a laugh and this woman gets killed the whole, it, it's just amazing isn't it the thing that struck me in the film is there's not 
there's very few scenes outside where there isn't a crime being committed. He's no. either, he looks out the window. Looks out the window and people are smashing up cars. Or people are just heads. abusing people. Yeah. It should, it, the film should have, should have said 30 years in the future or something. Because it's post-apocalyptic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's just a horrible vision of, of I, I mean, I suppose they're, they're trying to establish it has to be because this is what breaks this guy. But as you say, that scene where they're just, because even before they start shooting, I think they're just firing the gun in the air. Yeah. And this idea that people are just wandering around South London, yeah. firing guns, <laughs> like it's the old West. <laughs> And it is like that. Isn't it? Let's so, not let's not pretend that there isn't an issue with crime in. That's in like London. a western, isn't it? Yeah. That, hasn't, that hasn't occurred to me. Yeah, and it, it, it's not like you know the, the, there isn't guns and there isn't a problem with guns. But the idea that that's happening, yeah, people just shooting at women with prams for yeah. a laugh on a on a bike. You know, just this. It, it was like they tried to put like four different crimes onto one thing, didn't they? Yeah, and this is the thing. Um, it's very much like an exploitation movie, which we'll come back to in a second. But the the unpleasant thing about it is that there's an underlying message that, say, like my nan, for example, believes that people now are inherently worse than people were yeah. in the past. Yeah. Like a 16-year-old now is a worse human being than a 16-year-old in the uh, 50s or whatever. Yeah. And that's just not fair at all fair, is it? No, not at all. And the idea that, you know... This guy, it's the whole thing of because he was in the Marines, it gives his violence validity. I don't, I didn't understand that as well. Where it's sort of like this because this guy at one point was hired to kill people. When he goes out to kill people, that's I don't know. It just seemed really odd. This sort of conflicting message of you know. Well, then you got the other thing as well. The fact that he's kind of fought for Britain, yeah. And now he's. I mean, the message is you know the fact he can't go through the underpass. They're saying basically he's a prisoner in his own country, yeah. I and mean, it's just so yeah. sensationalist, isn't it? And the thing is, if you you can't just take it as an exploitation film because it's more sinister than that. There is a not, I think there is a kind of there's a kind of it plays on people's paranoia, doesn't it? It's like you know every kind of Daily Mail headline. Yeah, they want it to be an exploitation film, but have gritty realism at the same time. So basically, it's played out as almost like a a lot of it, as you say, with the camera on it, is like almost like documentary style, isn't it? Yeah, it's not completely unappealing, I think, for the first uh, 45 minutes or whatever it is. You know, you've got this kind of decay in a state. And if you kind of ignore the undertones and just go, I'm watching this as an exploitation film, I think it's got some merits. But then you get to the scene where Harry Brown's, where his friend's been killed. So he goes to buy a gun. Yeah. This is where it just comes And it's one it. of the, the worst scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. He turns up at this flat when you, when you get inside. It's like the TARDIS, isn't it? You get in there and it's huge. <laughs> it's like a warehouse or something, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But you've got this kind of... Um, it's a warehouse with a front door. This idea that you've got these two two blokes who are just smacked off their faces. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a part, there's a girl who's passed out and, you know, they're sort of broadcasting uh, a porno they've made with her. Yeah. It's horrible, you know. It's not horrible, it's just stupid. <laughs> they're sort of do he's uh, smoking crack through a gun barrel at one point one of the guys and they're just an absolute mess there's sort of scabs on their face crackheads but they're also managing to sort of farm a load of marijuana as well <laughs> just sort of combine everything together the kind of pe- the kind of uh, big time drug dealer but also the, the smackhead is the same person that kind of ridiculous idea and it's just cartoonish isn't it yeah but fortunately uh, Harry Brown 
sorts them out, doesn't he? And that's where it all sort of, yeah. Yeah, he goes marine on them, doesn't he? <laughs> and then um, takes the girl to hospital, but doesn't take her to hospital, just leaves her outside. Le- his, his way to save her is she's in some what looks like a, a, a drug-induced coma. So he drives her to outside a hospital, then sets the horn off on the car, <laughs> uh, thinking that's definitely going to get her uh, medical attention. Whereas, realistically, if we heard a car horn going outside, now you go, that's annoying. You wouldn't assume <laughs> there's definitely a girl that might die in there. Hospital receptionist run out. Yeah, they that's, what they, that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're listening for. No, they're waiting for emergency phone calls. Make a phone call. Terrible. There's another really bad scene as well where the interrogation scene is a bit of a montage. We've got the two police, man and woman. Yeah. Um, and you're sitting opposite um, well, a couple of criminals, but there's one main one who's like the son of uh, and yeah. the nephew of kind of a major criminal. And he's sitting there with his lawyer. And this scene goes on for probably about five minutes. It's kind of montage. And at no point does the lawyer ever say anything, despite the fact that the, the uh, criminal is, you know, making threats to the police. <laughs> and the police are making threats to him, and the lawyer is just sitting there. And incidentally, Steve, the uh, policeman is uh, Charlie Creed Miles, who's also in the hereafter. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's, uh, he's either the photographer or a social worker. I think he's the photographer. Okay. And he was in that Dickens adaptation, Great Expectations. Which I imagine we'll be talking more about Dickens in a later episode, won't we? Yeah, we'll get to him, definitely. The Malfoy Criminal is played by Plan B. I'm sure he's got a real name as well. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't put the two things together, but it is, isn't it? Yeah. it it's, it's a remarkable performance in that what he does mostly is uh, be horrifically uh, aggressive and misogynistic towards... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the female officer um, and it's one of those things where you just sort of go it's such a, a natural sort of performance it seems quite easy to him I, I don't know enough about the guy to sort of I don't have, I have no idea the I don't think we can accuse Plan B of uh, no, misogynistic no. can we and, and in terms of his music I'd heard of him but not heard any of his music until uh, the song that plays out over the end of the film which yeah, is one of his and it's, it's very uh, much um, a song by a cast member isn't it they've just put in for that reason yeah, it's not very good you it? say song by a cast member but when you say that I think of like the theme from Minder and that's great <laughs> if only this was as tenth as good as the theme from Minder yeah so I, I mean I'm sure he's done good songs as well but that isn't one of them and it didn't make me curious at all about any more of his work no I'm not a fan the director Daniel Barber he made he's an advert director mostly but he, he um, adapted Nelmar Leonard's short story, The Tonto Woman. Oh, right. Won a few awards in festivals. But I watched it today. It's quite dull, though. You've failed to maintain your women, son. When aliens invade, the idea of heroes and villains all become relative in Joe Cornish's Attack the Block. Good, isn't it? Attack the Block. Actually a good film. Yeah, it's all right. I liked it. You didn't like it. I was a bit, a un- little bit underwhelmed. See, I, d- I didn't have a lot of expectations. Going there. I think I'd probably watched uh, Hereafter and Harry Brown first, so I was just willing a film to be quite good. Yeah, you say it's, it's uh, Joe Cornish's debut of Adam and Joe fame. And uh, have you, did you see much of the Adam and Joe show? No, I'm only sort of catching up on it now. I've only I've only seen bits and bobs, but they used to do um, little make little films with toys. And yeah. he says in interviews, he's mentioned how that's kind of was a little bit of a film score for him, or certainly partly, you know, the kind of making 
um, recreating Hollywood films, kind of spoofing them with these toys. There's a great one called Tufty Club, which is um, a Fight Club parody with right. all these toys. And, uh, you know, the first rule of Tufty Club is you do not cross the road without looking both ways. <laughs> and the second rule of Tufty Club is you do not cross the road without... <laughs> uh, there's another bit where he's like... Um, He's doing like the Brad Pitt one. He's like, you know, we we're all brought up to think we we're going to be millionaires and movie stars and rock gods. And one of the other toys goes, you're Brad Pitt, you are a movie star. <laughs> and I, they, they did another one of Snatch as well, which is also brilliant. And they're the only two I've seen, I think. I was shown um, Juliet Work uh, was telling me about uh, a sketch, which is Help the Police. Do you know this sketch? I don't. It's uh, one of them, Adam Wajar, I can never tell him apart in the front of a car with his wife and their son sitting in the back and he turns around and says to his son it's Tuesday you know what that means NWA day <laughs> and the wife sort of looks at him and goes no chance as he leans towards the stereo to put on NWA and he's like don't worry I've got this and starts playing uh, F the police should I call it that so we don't get an explicit yeah, tag call it yeah. That, yeah. Uh, by NWA well, I'll call him NWA <laughs> so we don't get an explicit tag um but at key points in the song, you can imagine which points they are, he uh, kills the volume and replaces it with his own version, <laughs> which is all about helping the police with their inquiries and ensuring that everyone has a pleasant day. Yeah, uh, it's brilliant. Really, really I'll good. In terms of the estate setting, one of the things that I thought was well observed, but then sort of backfired a little, was uh, the fact that on the estate, they actually have flags hanging out the windows which you do see a lot on South London Estates, you know, the uh, sort of St George's flag hanging out the windows. Um, and I didn't notice that in any of the other films. But the interesting thing was, when it first cropped up in the film, early on I was like, oh, right, yeah, flags, flags hanging windows, you do get that on Estates. And I don't know how much, how spoilerific we want to go, but towards the end of the film, the fact that a flag is hanging from a window becomes important to the plot. Um, but, and the, my problem there was, the flag that they use at the end for the key sequence was a Union Jack. Yeah, you don't really see him. You don't see him. Moment. We were talking about this in a different context a few weeks ago, where in up to probably, I don't know, the World Cup in 86 or 90, you would have had Even Union later, Jacks. I think, yeah. I think it More was, so, I mean, 86, I mean, you Yeah, all you 86 think of was all Union Jacks, Union Jacks, isn't it? And it's only really, I don't know, I guess it was probably um, Euro 96, yeah, probably around that time. They made, I think the FA made an active effort to for people to bring accurate flags to football matches. <laughs> you know, it's not Britain, is it? It's, uh, yeah, you know, bring an England flag. It's definitely England, England that are yeah, yeah, and it's just odd that, to, at that point, you know, to observe the fact that the flags are hanging, but you just don't see Union Jacks or Union flags, to use the proper talk, because you're not, you, you know, London Nautical, you should have jumped in the correct me at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, it, you don't see those hanging from windows on any estate. You see uh, St George's Crosses. So it was, I'd say it was literally nice to observe, but then sort of backfired a little bit by choosing the wrong flag. It's an enjoyable film, but we're back to the same problem you have with most of these films that are set on estates in South London, in that crime has to just be at the centre of it, doesn't it? You have to have a criminal activity. And they try and sort of like subvert it a little bit by having the villains in a way become the heroes and it's like, you know. But it's just, I don't know. Well, it starts off with this woman getting mugged. Yeah. But it's sort of... I'm not, I'm not saying it's unforgivable, but it kind of says a lot about the character. You know, this guy that I'm supposed to warm to. Yeah. He's a, like, the start of the film, he's robbing this woman. Like, he's kind of quite a horrible guy. 
And then, I mean, I won't spoil it, but as the film goes on, they kind of go, this is... So they might as well put a title card up that says, this is the reason why this boy is like this. Yeah. It's quite kind of... Uh, quite simplistic isn't it the kind of moralising well also there's that ridiculous bit where uh, they get talking to the victim later on in the film and uh, he says to her if we knew you lived on the estate Ugh. what are you talking yeah. about what are you talking uh. about the idea that I mean there's maybe there, there might be a little bit of truth in some of the messages that they push they kind of quite make quite an active effort to say that people who live on estates are kind of there's some camaraderie with people you know yeah. uh, some kind of uh, loyalty with the people they live with. There might be some truth in that. But the idea that they wouldn't have nicked this woman's phone or whatever. Yeah. They wouldn't have acted like, you know... And the fact that at the start it's quite a violent mug and they pull a knife on, yeah. on her and stick it to her. And then later on in the film she says that to them and one of them goes, uh, it's just to speed things up. You're like, yeah, we know why you're using a knife to make the mugging easier. That's still wrong though, isn't it? You're not sort of go, oh, well, points for efficiency. You know, it was, it was a mugging but at least they were very, very quick about it. Just, yeah. So that bit is a bit muddled but, you know, it's it's fun. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to sit here and whine about it because it's it's not a bad film. Another thing, though, if I can just add another negative, Go on. you know, Nick Frost, right? I think Nick Frost is brilliant. Yeah. Like, he's such a great comic actor. Yeah, you know, he's so talented. It's one of those things um, where you know acting is like different to a lot of things, where a lot of it, obviously, there's a lot of hard work goes into things, but there's so much of it is people's sort of natural charisma, um, and he's brilliant, Nick Frost. And it, I did feel it was just a little bit underused. It was kind of the sort it's, of standard kind one of... one note, in it? It's, yeah, very one they note. They don't push him and he doesn't uh, stretch himself at all. But, you know, it's functional. And that's the, that's the thing, it's not a brilliant film. It's just in comparison to... It's so much more enjoyable than Harry Brown, because there's a sense of fun to it. And uh, it's infinitely better than Hereafter, in that it's uh, a decent film. Didn't take a lot to, to beat that one up. What if it jumps at us? Then throw the banger. What if I miss? Then we run. What if it kills us? No one is going to ever call you mayhem if you keep on acting like such a pussy. The Aylesbury estate opened up in 1977. Uh, the architect was a man called Hans Peter Trenton. I don't know exactly what school he comes from, but let's just assume it's it's, it's quite brutal, isn't it? stroke neo brutalist, isn't it? It's, it's quasi brutalist. I really That's like the Ellsbury Estate uh, uh, architecturally. I think it look, I really like what it looks like, on, particularly on screen. But I kind of got a soft spot for you know, and the you, plate, the, some of the flats as well, really, really nice. My mum's friend Lil used to live on um, uh, what's it called? The one next to Gayhurst. I can't remember what it's called now. I have no idea. I used to know all their names. I can't remember now. But, yeah, she had a kind of two-level flat in there. Three levels, even. It was lovely with a garden as well. You you could enter from Albany Road onto the garden. So you didn't have to ever go through the estate. I wonder. Even. But, yeah, it was great. Really nice places. And I think it looks really nice. I've never lived on there. But I, base, I grew up in its shadow, basically. My, um, I lived on the same road that, you know, that much of it is on for You were telling me the years. other week how you like... You prefer the colour of rich bricks over other estates. This is how much of a yeah. fan you are of it. Yeah, the kind of that's the Haygate and the Aylesbury are often kind of mixed up, um, and sometimes it is difficult on screen to tell. You know, if you just get one shot, but you kind of there's that kind of uh, you've got kind of green tinting around the pale green, horrible pale green tinting around the windows in the Haygate, <laughs> whereas the Aylesbury is more grey. Which it's, I like. it's hard for me to tell, but you're you're talking about tinting, so you're you're well on it. Aren't you? I'm an expert. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting you make the point about how people uh, link these estates together uh, in their minds because 
uh, originally, and this is something I'd, I'd sort of known that line before, and doing a bit more research, it seems to be confirmed. The plans originally were to have walkways that would link. See, I'd always, I always knew the Ellsbury and the Haygate were designed to be linked, and I'd always. Well, they're not far, heard, are they? It's no, sort of exactly. either side of East Street, isn't it? Basically, but I'd always heard it was going to be Haygate to Ellsbury, then Ellsbury to the North Peckham. And at that point, you're sort of going... Yeah, it's quite futuristic, isn't it? There's yeah. this massive walkway over Burgess Park. But re- doing some research for this, apparently, and I don't know how true this is, because I can't find any verification, this is a quote from a resident, the plan was to link estates all the way to Crystal Palace. <laughs> which seems amazing. <laughs> that's, that's obviously not true, is it? At that point, you're talking like, uh, I'm going to throw in a 2008 reference, I'm going to throw in a comic reference. It's Mega City 1. It's Judge Red in it. It's just like these huge tower blocks connected by walkways. Just, um, What's the point? Yeah. Why is that necessary? Who's walking from Crystal Palace to Peckham on the, on a elevated walkway? Bizarre, but yeah. um, or even from you know the Ellsbury to the North Peckham estate, it's just not necessary, yeah. is it? You've got pavements. It's not mm. like you've got a nice park you can walk through. Yeah, you've, you've, there's there's options. It's not you know swampland below. You don't need to worry about uh, you know going through the pavements. In terms of the, the blocks that you were talking about, I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this until I'd read up on it. Uh, all the blocks on the Ellsbury are named after towns and villages in Buckinghamshire. Aylesbury is in Buckinghamshire, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But all the actual uh, blocks mm, themselves. Didn't know that. So Gayhurst would be uh, a town or village in Buckinghamshire. See, I think with the Buckinghamshire names, they were trying to bring... If, it feels like they're trying to bring the country to the city. Yeah, this doesn't... It's not fooling anyone, is it? Well, is it, the thing is, though, uh, I put a video up uh, yesterday that I found uh, on Twitter of what they're calling the Elephant Castle's urban forest, which is basically these mature trees that are there now that were planted when these estates uh, were built and are now sort of... And when you look at the video, it does look like a forest sort of growing between Mm. uh, these estates. It is quite remarkable. So it almost has worked. They have sort of brought the country to the sea. Maybe they have succeeded. The pastor at the church I used to go to always referred to the Aylesbury estate as the most densely populated area of Europe. Things he used to say, a lot of things were inaccurate. <laughs> so well, the Aylesbury... But that makes sense, though. The Aylesbury uh, was designed to hold 10,000 people, which is incredible. And I think it puts a bit of perspective on, because like, you know, I, I found a quote on um, in terms of crime figures... And at one point, they were claiming there was a crime every four hours on the Ellsbury estate, which sounds awful. Does that include people taping off the radio and stuff? (laughs) But it sounds awful, but if you think of it as 10,000 people, you know, if you think of it, you know, it's named after Towns Village. If you think about a town that's a a population of of 10,000 people, yeah, that's probably about right, isn't it? We should probably fill in the gap from a previous episode as well. And I can't believe that we missed this. Tiny Temper grew up on the Aylesbury estate. Yeah, I read that later on. Yeah. yeah. And we're both fans, aren't we? Yeah, Pass Out's great. You know, yeah. Just great. I've got so many clothes, I keep some in my aunt's house. I'm driving bus, driving past the bus I used to run for. Yeah. <laughs> I've been Southampton, but I've never been to Scumford. <laughs> See, I was prepared to quote lyrics. You'll, you'll do the impression, it's fine. He's got a comedy voice, isn't he? <laughs> Frisky. 
probably wasn't the first thing I ever saw filmed there, but that Channel 4 logo the kind of, uh, from a few years ago, they still show it, I think, where they have a load of buildings, the camera moves around, and there's kind of bits of buildings floating everywhere, and eventually it makes it the Channel 4 4. Um, and they did that on um, on the Aylesbury. And there's a bit of kind of, you can see my parents' road, you know, just through the end of it. Um, and that was kind of, seemed like quite a big moment. It seemed like I was like, <laughs> so every time like every time Channel 4 was on we're sort of going like there it is there it is there it is but like now it's kind of uh, it's quite commonplace isn't it you know it was in a Madonna video when it hung up yeah the uh, ABBA sample uh, which I really like the song Steve I know you watched it on mute I, I was like if I've got to watch a Madonna video at least as I have to listen to a Madonna song because we're, I'm here for the visual aspects I'm not here for the song and then even then uh, it's like four and a half minutes a song the L's was in it for like 30 seconds yeah, less a minute that. in and I'm just sitting there for three minutes going this is this is other places I really like the video though it's kind of it was kind of quite a big video because it's got Madonna prancing around in a pink leotard and thrusting a 47 year old groin towards the camera <laughs> and she is extraordinarily agile you know she's doing the splits and stuff you know and it was quite it sort of made headlines you know in sort I do of remember celebrity AM yeah, yeah. or whatever <laughs> But it's a really well put together video, I think. It's kind of a bit of a mishmash. But I just think it's really, really nicely shot. Um, you just, the Aylesbury bit is some free runners jumping all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. But then it kind of ends up in, in this club where it just goes in super slow motion of people dancing and stuff and Madonna dancing. I just think it's really, really nice. At the time, sort of one of those sort of videos where the content is not particularly notable. But it's just really, really well done. And the guy has since gone on. Johan Renk, the director's name is, he's since gone on to direct a couple of episodes of Breaking Bad. So he obviously oh, knows right. what he's doing. Well, in terms of like the, the, the free runners on the estate, you know, you sent me an article uh, about South London estates on screen uh, where they talk about, you know, the practicalities of the situation where you've got, as I say, with, with the Haygate in particular, because it's deserted now, you've got this uh, huge set that they mm. can pretty much do anything they like with because they haven't got... With the other estates, they have to sort of appease the residents yeah. and warn the residents. And then you've got so... I mean, it's one thing shooting is in a street where you've got two people's or three people's houses affected when you've got sort of dozens of residents. I imagine that comes with its own difficulties, doesn't well, it? Well, in the article uh, that I read, they, they made it very clear that the residents were quite pleased. They were proud that their estate's on screen they get paid money, they're quite pleased that they can run into people. But this weekend, um, St Peter's in Woolworth, uh, on their Twitter account, put up a link to a BBC uh, news story uh, from this week. And it's about uh, residents on these estates who are sick of it now. Hmm. And there's this great quote from this woman where uh, they were talking about Brad Pitt uh, filming uh, World War Z. And uh, the reporter said to her, you know, is it still annoying if there's a possibility of, uh, you know, Brad Pitt dropping in for a cup of tea. And she was like, yeah, I definitely don't want Brad Pitt dropping in for a cup of tea. So clearly, it's just like, they're sick to the back teeth of it now. They've like, the novelty's worn off, and they're like, this will do. But it doesn't sound like the filmmakers are going to go anywhere. You know, for them, they, they were saying in terms of, you know, we, we joke about the brutalism, but filmmakers love that. They love the clean lines, the fact that there's walkways, gives them so, many, so much scope with angles. The views from the roof, you know, if you... you yeah, it's tremendous. Yeah, you've got London skyline just there. So many landmarks to pick out. And also, and this is the problem, I think, it's visual shorthand, isn't it? Once you, and this, this, is, this is where we, we come into issues, where once you see those estates, you kind of know what to expect. 
which is, as I say, where they should... And this is the problem. The, the residents themselves are getting sick of that now. They're sort of like, you can't... You know, it's quite offensive, isn't it, to say, we're going to do a crime drama, we're mm. going to need your house, because... Yeah, we're going to put fake graffiti up on your door to make it look worse than it does. What are you trying to represent in that? And that's the problem. This is the thing. You're not trying to represent the reality of the situation. You're trying to re- represent the perception of the situation. You want something that makes it look what you're trying to sell, which is a graffitied and therefore crime ridden area. That's that's the story you're trying to tell, which is a shame. Which links nicely into the television show we're going to talk about filmed on the Aylesbury. You haven't written a pithy intro about it, Steve. I haven't. So Top Boy, starring Ashley Waters and Kano. Yeah. Uh, first season um, was on in the autumn, set in the Aylesbury Est- No, not set in the Aylesbury Estate. We'll come back to that in yeah, a second. Yeah, bizarre. But about small-time drug dealers and big-time drug dealers uh, in the estate um, and sort of the various people that are affected by that. Yeah, you've got Asher D and Kano as the sort of the leads almost, I would guess. As they, they, they get the most screen time. Yeah, them and the boy. Yeah. But you've also got... Uh, there's other sort of uh, grime MCs in there as well. You've got Scorcher, you've got Sway. Uh, and Sway was in it. Sway, uh, Sway's in it and... He's listed as a character called Ross Roston, who I couldn't recollect. One of the other dealers, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Turn up and and I, I wasn't prepared to go back in and sort of research and, and spot the exact thing. But yeah, it was just uh, remarkable. But, you know, great performances. Yeah, I thought, um, I think Asher D's, um, you know, he hasn't played a massive range of characters, but, you know, that's kind of not that relevant, I don't think, really. He was really good in Bullet Boy, I thought. Um, I've not seen that. But... Yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. Um, it's not brilliant, but it's you know it's worth watching. And Kano's first thing, he's playing a bit of a hothead. Yeah. Um, and who knows if he'll be able to play any you know loads of different if he'll have a great versatility in his range or whatever. But he's also very good. I think. I think generally the performances all round were, for the most part, good. I thought the dialogue was very good. I uh, enjoyed it a bit initially I was like this is okay well, I wasn't blown away by it but then um, I, I can't remember what, exactly what scene it was but there was this bit where um, it sounds like it's like ambient sounds there's like traffic sounds and like alarms going and it suddenly uh, sort of moves into becoming the song itself and the music was just incredible it really sort of sold the, the, the scene and I got like two episodes in and I just started noticing the music more and more and it's really just like enhancing my enjoyment so I don't mean to sort of uh Stick a pin in that, Steve. But the, in Breaking Bad, at the end of... It might be the end of a season, or maybe it's just at the end of an episode, but they play um, Niles Barkley, Who's Gonna Save My Soul, which is really such a great track, and it's brilliant, the second Niles Barkley album. Re- highly recommend it if you haven't listened to it before. Um, and it's really, really effective, Who's Gonna Save My Soul, and it works perfectly with Breaking Bad, which is a brilliant TV show, and um, it's all about sort of a man losing his soul, really, all four seasons. And they sort they used it again in that in uh, oh, right. and it's just, it always seems a, it's funny. There's a, on the um, there's a bonus track on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, and it's in a 15 minute interview of Tarantino. It's brilliant. He talks about using music in films, and he talks about how once a bit of music has been used in a film, to ever use it again is like it's just it's like piracy. You know, it's just a cop out. <laughs> like um, the so, what's the name of that song at the beginning of Mean Streets that is also used in Dirty Dancing. Is it Be My Baby? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he sort of talks about how, you know, it was dark, it's perfect at the beginning of Main Street. Yeah. It's really, really good. Then they just use it in another film. 
since then, right, in Death Proof and Kill Bill, every track Tarantino uses is from something else. He's like sticking <laughs> Ennio Morricone stuff on there. Stuff that was specifically composed for film soundtracks he's using. So he's obviously gone back on that. And obviously you can't completely say never use anything again because it's a terrible film. uses a bit of music, you know. But I, I do tend to feel that, like, once something's been used, try and find something else. It's pretty, there's a lot of music out there. Well, my concern with uh, using... And that was the thing. When I think it's at the end of episode one they use that track, isn't it? And they do it with a sort of montage over the top of it. And it really bothered me at that point because I was like, you know, famously at the end of every season of The Wire they would do a montage with a song playing over the top of it. And it really felt, you know, Top Boy feels very wiry in places anyway. There's wiry. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of like, you know, you've got... You can't escape the comparison, can you? No, well, it, but it seemed almost in, t- in places they were inviting it. You had like, obviously the kids, but also uh, the character of... Uh, the, the, the Cutty. Guy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He's basically... He's, the... he's even got Cutty's beard. I yeah, like, he looks exactly like Cutty from The Wire, Den- or, a.k.a. Dennis Wise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know the actor's name, but he's sort of a bit... Uh, what I've written in my notes is fake Chiwetel Ejiofor, <laughs> which I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But, you know, he's kind of... Uh, he looks a lot like him. He's got a similar beard to the, what Chiwetel Ejiofor has in the uh, shadow line. The, the music I enjoyed, though, was the original music. That was the thing. It wasn't so much the track. And when they used that track, I was like, oh, I don't like a montage with a song playing on top of it. But it was the original music. And by episode two, I was like, this original music is fantastic. And I made a point of going to Wikipedia to find out. Who did it. Do you know who did the music for it? No. It's Brian Eno. Really? Brian Eno. Brino. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm not really uh, someone that note, does things like notice music in, in films and things like that. And it was so sort of really enhancing my enjoyment, the whole thing. It was yeah. really... Sort well, he's great, isn't he, obviously? <sighs> I was like, uh, you know, another uh, soundtrack person I enjoy is uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, who works with Wes Anderson. Devo. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, I, I was thinking, when I saw Eno had done this, I was like, if you can't get the guy from Devo, get the guy from Talking Heads, isn't it? It's, it's, <laughs> Loosely, the plot is Asher D's character and Kano's character. They're sort of partners. They sell drugs at a summer house, which is the name of the estate. And their bosses are um, Jeff Bell from one of the hooligan films. He's like a cockney. Yeah, Football Factory. Yeah, he's a Football Factory. I really like him. I've got a real soft spot for kind of comedy cockney acting. Especially because they call him the drugs. They keep calling him food. food. And gr- he yeah, calls him yeah. grub. I think yeah, everyone calls him yeah. food. Yeah. And he gets to him and goes, we're my grub. Yeah, yeah. And it just really works well. Um, you know, and they kind of, they've been, they've been robbed uh, by a rival gang. They're trying to, trying to simultaneously pay, pay back their debts, but also expand. Yeah. So the problems yeah. that come with that. Um, and you've got a kid on the estate who's a little bit in with them. His mum's mentally ill. You know, she's gone off, so he's living by himself. He's kind of getting caught up in growing marijuana as well with a neighbour. Um, and and not his, really... his dad was involved, weren't he? His dad was like... Yeah, so he's got a little bit of... Uh, carries a little bit of weight, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, people kind of... There's pe- various people looking out for him, you know, on both sides of the uh, both sides of the fence. But in terms of the plot, there's not a great deal more to say than that, is there, in terms of the synopsis? No. It's kind of... And that's... That's maybe where my issue is that it's kind of a bit of a standard setup, and it doesn't really. It kind of sort of fulfills expectations, but it's not. Say like the wire, it's kind of difficult. It's not really maybe not fair to compare everything to the greatest, yeah. t- greatest TV show of its genre, um, or greatest TV show ever. However you look at it, um, 
it's not going to be favourable to compare things to that. But you just you do you compare things to the best, and it's not it's not as it's not anywhere near that, is it? I, I would I would in its defence <coughs> in its defence I would say the wire operated on a completely different scale. It's it's, uh, it's trying yeah, to be a microcosm true. of society as a whole through a sea, whereas here it's very much this particular story, which you know does involve a few different elements. But I think with the wire. You 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 can sort of enjoy it on a level where you don't necessarily think about the kind of statements oh, no. it's making. It's, and say even in the first series, yeah, you're not you're not necessarily aware that it's doing that until no. later on, are you? Uh, and this is the thing I think with uh, with Top Boy, the fact that this is I thought it was just a one-off drama. The fact that it's essentially the first season, hopefully, means that by the second one they can be a bit freer in what they do. I, you know, without wanting to sort of you know make bold statements. If his if that main character's dad doesn't turn up in season two, I'd be stunned. Mm. I think it's basically going to be his dad comes back. Yeah, I would hope they've fought they've fought through to season two. The, you want with the fingers with British programs is that they're only ever there are only ever miniseries, aren't they? Yeah. So I kind of started watching it just assuming everyone was going to die at the end, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because that's yeah, just yeah. how they work. These yeah. programs, yeah. they just have very finite endings. Yeah. Um, I don't watch a lot of British dramas because they're mostly rubbish, aren't they? You know, there's very, very, very few good ones. Any time I talk to you about British television, you, uh, you, you'll inevitably say to me, "Is it as good as something made by HBO?" Yeah, exactly. That's, or that's, even that's just, your, is it as good as something American? Because, like, um, <laughs> you know, Breaking Bad's not made by no, HBO true, yeah. or Mad Men or you know, uh, The Shield. Yeah. You know. Like people judge um, British drama on a sort of different by a different standard, which I don't think is um, is legitimate. You know, it doesn't. Um, my enjoyment is not going to be better. My, I'm not going to enjoy it more because it's British. No. So unless it's actually good, please don't recommend it. <laughs> One thing that's relevant to the podcast and something I did find difficult to get past was the fact they keep calling it Hackney, but it's filmed in Woolworth. The, the, the one bit where that really struck home for me is when um, there's a chase scene with Jem, uh, the kids, he's being chased, and he runs through what is clearly the Elephant Castle underpass. Yeah. It can't be anywhere else. No, no, he drops the phone there, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. And like, you just watch it and go, that's the Elephant Castle. Mm. And th- there's another bit where the kids are like, uh, you know, he's, uh, one of the, the gang leaders sends his kids off on a, a, like, a mini stakeout, and the kid's like, he ate that in my ends, and I'm like, he was in the Elephant and Castle a minute. Yeah. None of these in your ends. Yeah, he you? goes uh, all the way in London Fields. Yeah. And yeah, that's well far from the Elephant. <laughs> yeah. But from where it's supposed to be in Hackney, it's not that far, is it? That's the thing, but uh, watching it, for us, watching it with that sort of in the it, background, it does sort of throw you. Like, it why completely threw to... in the first episode. When yeah. they first referred to it as Hackney, I, I was a little bit confused. I didn't really understand, because the thing is, there's no reason for them not to call it Woolworth. Yeah. There's no reason for them to call it Hackney. Well, they don't have to say Woolworth because people don't generally say Woolworth. They just have, they don't need to call it the Aylesbury Estate either. But don't make it a specific place that it isn't. And you know, it can kind of if you kind of get hung up on accurate geography in film on film and locations, you know, it's it's, it's a you know it's a false game, and you know, yeah, you're not of course. you're not going to win, are you? Like, is it Robin Hood, Steve? You probably know better than me. What's the <laughs> what's the read? turns up at the White Cliffs of Dover? Yeah, and then Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, White Cliffs of Dover, Hadrian's Wall, Nottingham. <laughs> you know, and that's uh, this is not exactly that, but at the same time, it did kind of it jarred a little, I must admit. We'll just use something for me, 
they're so distinctive those particular that particular underpass and i you know i don't know hackney particularly well but i can't imagine what that's supposed to be equivalent of it's really just uh, just bizarre and as they took yeah, me it, did, it took me out of it that was and especially with asher d being from across the road well across the park even you know He's uh, from, I think, from the North Peckham Estate. He, he went to St George's Primary School, where um, several of my friends went, and um, that was basically it's almost in the North Peckham Estate, you know, sort of uh, landlocked by it. In in their defence, that that also occurred to me as well. About I was like, Ashadis from South London. You filmed in South London, set in South London, but uh, Kano, Scorch, Sway, and most of the other cast, I think, are from. It's not like they've got a different accent. No, this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's not like you're sitting in Cardiff. You you know, you're going to get away with it. I don't think the Asbury Estate has ever looked better on screen. I think the cinematography in in it is a real triumph. I mean, it looks beautiful. And that kind of title card as well, when it kind of pans across uh, the skyline and ends up with the estate. And it's kind of, they've done stuff with the colour a little bit. You know, it's kind of lit, really. It was not well, how you would that, see that, it. That's another thing as well. In terms of me noticing the music, like I don't normally notice the music, the lighting on it uh, was gorgeous. Yeah, really, really nice looking. I, and, you know, I have no idea how they would do that. But it was, you know, something that really um, struck me. And it, again, not something I'd normally notice. As you know, Steve, when the, when the show was on, I had a little bit of a interaction with one of the actors on Twitter. Postcode was, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, Giacomo Mancini he, he's the white boy in it with the dog and I, I'm going to say a spoiler Steve you, for, from within five minutes it's not minutes, a spoiler is it five like... minutes of the program, yeah, that dog's going to die this kid walking around he's sort of hugging his dog I think he one bit he sort of French kisses the dog he loves that dog doesn't he but like you're just like oh right so at some point this nerd's dog's going to get killed. it's not even like the interaction with the dog I think there's a scene where they're walking home from school with the dog and the camera's on the dog the yeah. humans are like whatever <laughs> These kids, you know, we'll get to them later. Have a look at this beautiful dog. See, I wanted to see what people were saying. I, was, well, I think I watched it the night it was on. Um, it seemed to be quite a kind of big television moment, you know. As... I skipped it completely. Yeah, but there were, there were billboards everywhere. Yeah. And on the billboards, it, was, um, it wasn't the Ellsbury in the background. It was those estates in Peckham, just on Southampton Way around that area. Yeah. There's a lot shot there as well. It's not just in Woolworth. There's a few bits there. So I thought, well, I'd better tune into this. And uh, so there was a lot of hype. And then ended up just sort of through Twitter finding Giacomo Mancini, who plays the the, uh, the white boy, and he, he was tweeting and everything. He was putting a capital letter at the beginning of every word, like in his in his tweet. It's, I've never seen or heard of that. Before no, Tyler. Anywhere. Well, Tyler the creator does it. You know the rapper. Yeah, yeah. So I just tweeted at him saying, "Look, you know, you might want to consider not capitalizing every word in the tweet because it doesn't." it's incorrect and it doesn't come across well and I genuinely was doing it to help the guy out so he's obviously he's quite young and he's like 17, 18 also you made the point as well this is his first sort of breakout thing you said this is going to be how people get to know you yeah this is his voice now. Yeah, this is yeah. all people will see of him is him you know and it makes him look like a div <laughs> I didn't call him a div <laughs> you didn't first. call him a div not at first him. anyway <laughs> but so he just started getting uh he, got, he was really hostile about it. And I was like, look, I'm not trying to be horrible. What, he said, what was he, he said to you? He called me a moist breath, Steve. Well, that was later, wasn't it? <laughs> Initially, he was like, wasn't he like, shut up, you dickhead? That was his response. Yeah, yeah, with Which capital was... D. <laughs> He's met you. This is a... Yeah, but then it sort of escalated. And um, yeah, he called me a moist breath. And I said, I'm not going to have someone from Chesham call me a moist breath. <laughs> And he said he wasn't from Cheshire and he's just moved there recently. I mean, it was ridiculous, the whole exchange. 
My favourite bit was when he said, uh, what are you talking about, Chessington? I'm from somewhere in West London. And uh, your reply was, uh, still nice to be that close to the world of adventures. It's <laughs> good for a minute. And I think, again, he might call you a dickhead. But, uh, you know, at that point, the whole uh, exchange of deteriorated and it turned into uh, something it was never supposed to be. No. Just take my advice. I'm right. <laughs> but yes, it was, it was uh, decent, wasn't it? Yeah, I say... Uh, I enjoyed it a bit at first. I was like, this is okay. And then they had that montage with a song, and I was like, oh, it's a bit of the wire. I don't know if this is right. But then once the Eno stuff kicked in, I say the stuff he was doing, there's like alarm. It, there was one bit where it's like this scratching sound, and I thought it was just something happening in the background. And he realised it's the music. Mm. And I was like, this is, you know, brilliant. I thought it was a little bit sanitised, right? It's just in, in respect to sex, right? Uh, it was it's got swearing in it and it's got yeah. violence, but every time it kind of end, there was anything sexual, it just kind of cut, and I feel like it needed to be more explicit. Did it? I don't like. I... Yeah, I think so, man. I think it would have benefited from some nudity. My see, my thing is generally with sex scenes, I never see the point of them. They never do anything for me in terms of telling. Them yeah, the no, I, I'm, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, once you know, it's they're... just, it's just. Um, yeah, I agree that you know if it go, once it goes on more than about fifteen seconds, it's just gratuitous in it most once, of the time. Once you're seeing it at all, if you know, no, I don't know, man. I kind, I just kind of feel like it was cut, it was taking me out of it where it was cutting too soon. You know, like everyone's still in their underwear. I, all I'm asking for is a bit of nudity. <laughs> it's a slice of life. It's an expose. This is not about you know one of those black shows that is trying to be moral and kind of have a really good ending and send a positive message to everyone this is just about t- kind of taking a piece of life and showing people exactly how it is and um, we're keeping it as true as we can as real to life as possible the brand estate was built in off opened in 1958 um so you're talking like 20 years really before uh, the Ellsbury and the Haygate and I think architecturally you can sort of see the difference can't you it's not brutal semi-brutal <laughs> i was saying i grew up in the shadow of the Aylesbury estate i kind of feel the same about the brandon in a way because both my grandparents live uh, both sets of grandparents lived round that way and the church i went to was there as well so i spent sort of equal amount of time um you know in that direction and you know when you in kennett and park annex which was the only bit of kennett and park i ever went to really we used to play rounders there and football with church all the time you see my granddad walking his dog there as well when I was playing rounders. You know, if I was fielding, I ended up having a chat with my granddad out, you know, between sort of catches. Probably cost the team a few times, Between it? Well, between one and the catches, there was the best player there. <laughs> Must be a bad team. No, I weren't the best, but I was in the top, top few. <laughs> but yeah, seeing it on screen is is uh, quite thrilling as well. Yeah, yeah. A couple of notable television shows filmed there. Again, you don't have, a, don't have piffy intros, do you? Nah, not for this, no. If it's not a feature film, I you know I can't make it by myself. It's a midnight video thing, isn't it? It's you know feature films, midnight TV. <laughs> Fifteen stories high, created by the comedian Sean Locke and starring him and uh, Benedict Wong. Who yeah. also turns up in Top Boy? Yeah, as uh, playing a Chinaman. Vietnamese, I think. Well, <laughs> I was all the way through Top Boy. Every time he turned up, I was like, why don't they? Just have him do his normal voice. Crossover. Yeah, exactly. And you sort of go, oh, right, is that what happened to Errol? Uh, (laughs) Errol turned in some hardcore drug dealer. That would have been uh, interesting. I think that's clearly why they've they've got him to do such a different voice for Top Boy. The fact that 
you know, if he did, it, it, I'd imagine people would be taken out of it. And if you'd seen him... Well, I'll tell you what I like about Top Boy, just quickly going back to it, um, is there's a real problem, I think, in British television of, of getting regional actors into uh, London set television shows. Like phone, I love Phone Shop, I think it's brilliant. Um, part, you know, despite some of its weaknesses, you know, some sort of contrived plots that don't always uh, go anywhere. But they every other week they've got like a northern actor in it, yeah. and it just completely takes you out of Sutton. Yeah, yeah. And but with uh, Top Boy, they completely resisted that. And if they'd have had Benedict Wong playing a mank, yeah, you know, it's it's just clearly television casting, isn't it? At that point, <laughs> but if you have him playing um, an immigrant, yeah, then it's immigrants. a different story because yeah. immigrants live in live on the Ellsbury estate, yeah. whereas northerners don't. <laughs> there was a suggestion after episode one that we'd forgotten. 15 stories high in our South London sitcoms roundup. Ben Caldwell was out for blood running. Yeah. And, well, it links in as well, because he's, uh, when we hadn't heard of Kidbrook. Well, I, had, <laughs> I hadn't anyway. Um, the estate in Kidbrook, is it the uh, Ferrier estate? Yeah, uh, Ferrier, yeah. Nil by Mouth was filmed there. Yeah. We're not going to cover that today, really. No, no. That's so bleak. I mean, that would just bring down... Yeah. Although, better than any of this stuff. Oh, uh, I... Definitely prefer 15 stories. Well, 15 stories, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Better than any of these films, I should say, the films we covered. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But no, we didn't forget 15 stories high. It's brilliant. It's one of my favourite sitcoms. Um, I watched, uh, I'd only seen season one before, and I watched season one and two this week on YouTube. It's great, isn't it? I watched, not all of it, yeah, pretty much all of it, back to back uh, for this. I'd seen bits and pieces before, but never got around to watching the whole thing. And watch our thing. It's just brilliant, isn't it? So good. Yeah, so unique as well. Well, that's the thing about it. It's so sort of fresh. Even now, it was like, you know, it's 10 years old now. And it still looks striking in terms of, you know, the the, the way it's filmed and the, the, the setup of it. It's, yeah, fantastic. So Sean Locke lives in one of those tower blocks uh, that overlook Kenneth and Park Annex. And... He plays Vince, an extraordinary character. He's a, a belli- mi- belligerent weirdo, yeah. I would say. Misanthropic lifeguard. Uh... <laughs> yeah, just a real unique character with a kind of unique kind of viewpoint and uh, stubborn and uh, selfish. But just it's just such a kind of a way you've never really seen before. It's almost, and obviously it predates it, but it's sort of quasi Kirby enthusiasm in the, the, the whole Larry David thing of him being right. But in Kirby Enthusiasm, they sort of have it where sometimes he's right and it's a statement of society. Whereas in this, he's sometimes very wrong. <laughs> yeah. But won't back down. Yeah. Even when he's wrong. And he's sort of like almost determined to shake the world around mm-hmm. him to make it fit his viewpoint. He's like chasing... Well, he's certainly him. forcing his flatmate Errol yeah. into uh, living, living by his kind of, uh, you know, rules. Yeah. Yeah, Errol, uh, Benedict Wong, as we said, who is brilliant, he's kind of... Uh, quite thick, <laughs> socially <laughs> retarded. His flatmate, he's uh, you know another kind of incredible character, really. Because yeah. as as I, said, I think I was saying on a previous episode, doing the kind of stupid character, it's a difficult thing to get right. And even with Trigger, you know, it's good, it's funny, yeah, yeah. but it's it's not really unique, is it? Whereas this kind of with Errol, he he seems to bring a, a kind of. Uh, his own kind of, like, it's a bit like Carl Pilkinless, maybe. Well, it's just this wonderful dynamic where you've got the, the you know, the, the sort of cliched comic stupid character, 
but by aligning him with this misanthrope, and he's so determined to please him that he does terrible things, doesn't he? He sort of forces Errol into doing awful things because he wants to not upset him, and it does. It just gives it a, a completely sort of fresh outlook. I mean, the whole the whole setup. You know, watching all these these films and TV shows. Uh, as I say earlier on, it's you know the visual shorthand for the estate is it's going to be about crime and it's going to be gritty. It's going to be, and the the genius behind Fifteen Stories High is the the idea that they had, which is you know so simple as all, all the best ideas are. If you get that many people living together, anything can be happening in the other flats. And yeah. that's that's the show, isn't it? You've got these main characters, but it's just this wonderful thing, just cutting away yeah. to something entirely unrelated, like sketches. But even yeah, it's like a sketch show, isn't but it? It doesn't need point. to be a sketch, even. It can just be just this it, it, this bit where it's just like an old man flexing in the mirror. Hmm. And that's it. And there's no payoff. No. There's no sort of, oh, someone, you know, someone at the door or whatever. Sometimes it ties in, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, always wonderful. And, you know, the things that happen in the other flats, there's a guy keeping a horse. Yeah, well, it's not even a horse's no, it's a pony, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know uh, those the, the uh, ping pong obsessed brothers, mm. anything, same same actor. Yeah, yeah. And I think so, anything about it, and that's the thing as well in terms of the actors. I mean, uh, that particular guy also turns up in This Is England and a few other things. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, some of the people who turn up in it as well. I think I was saying to you as well, watching it now as opposed to watching it then. I was watching it, you know, last week. And there's a scene, I'm like, it's Capote, isn't it? It's not. It's, Philip Seymour uh, Hoffman. <laughs> Toby, uh, what's his name? Not Toby Young, although I want to call Toby him. Toby Jones. That. Toby Jones. Is it Toby Jones? I think it's Toby Jones, yeah. Toby Jones. Yeah, um, and the people who turn up, it is just, yeah, fantastic. And a lot of people that you've never Peter seen. Peter Serafinovitz. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that struck me watching it now, as opposed to watching it then... Um, I don't know if you spotted this. Uh, there's a, there's an episode where um, Vince, the Sean Locke character, and it's just a great episode from start to finish. He steals a plough from a pub. Ah, uh, maybe the best episode because straight away that's a great gag because yeah, there's ploughs in pubs and there shouldn't yeah. be. And you know, so that's a great. Oh, uh, when they sort of reveal that he went through a graveyard. <laughs> but I as, was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the great things as well, where he's like trying to convince Errol that he's right. So uh, Errol's almost like, you know, yeah, drags him talking. But then the vicar turns up and he mm. ends up befriending the vicar. But there's a bit in there where, um, and again, we can probably, I'm saying this, we can probably, I can find a clip on YouTube to, to load up as, as evidence for this. It's almost a throwaway moment, but it just really struck me. And I don't know if you spotted this. The, the, the vicar asks him, they're sort of hanging out in a hall, and the vicar says to him, you probably don't believe in God, and he says, not really. And the vicar says, uh, it doesn't bother me. Do you think it bothers me? Look at my face, does it look bothered? <laughs> yeah. And it really struck me, and I was like, what? And then I sort of checked the dates, because I thought, I don't want to be accusing people of anything. But basically, Catherine Tate uh, does that like two years later and turns it into this yeah. cultural phenomenon. But when you watch his book, it's not just the lines. The whole performance is there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. I found it quite. Um, it, by the time I kind of uh, you know processed it, they were onto something else. Yeah, but yeah, it was. Yeah, it's, it's the, exact, it's the it. exact line. Yeah, I paused it to check because I was like, "Are they?" I, I thought maybe they're ripping off the fact that it's there at the time, but no. Uh, she clearly owes them some mm. money, doesn't she? Because uh, she keep it. Kind of built a career off it. Filthy lucre, isn't it? Yeah. One of my favourite scenes. It's in the first season. 
where um, Vince is teaching this woman to swim. Um, she's a glamour model and she wants to do shoots on beaches and stuff but she has to learn to swim otherwise she has to go back to doing readers' wives <laughs> and there's a jealous husband and um, the scene where they're at the uh, the uh, swimming pool and he turns up and he picks up this, this bottle of chlorine and he's like I'm going to drink this you know if you don't stop teaching to swim I'm going to drink this and Sean Lott's character's going well they don't belong to you they're expensive chemicals <laughs> but they're and eventually the guy drinks some you know and he's like oh, that's disgusting <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Another bit as well when uh, Errol, he's sort of tearing all this wallpaper down, sort of got his compulsion to just tear all the wallpaper down. Which, wonderfully, is never explained no. or discussed. It just happens. And then he just, eventually he walks out, uh, he sort of sort of uh, backs out of the house and he's just got his hot, his trousers are just full of wallpaper. <laughs> he smuggles out a room full of wallpaper in his pants. There was a line in it, Steve, that made me think of you. Do you know what one it was? No, but I'm terrified now. When the uh, doorbell goes... And he goes, don't get that, it could be anyone. It could be Jim Davidson. <laughs> it could be Hitler. <laughs> I think that might be the priest one, mightn't it? Where, uh, yeah. He's anticipating yeah, a visit uh, from the police. Um, another uh, character that I loved, and again, it's such a simple Ooh. idea, uh, is the, I don't know, meter reader, postman, basically. Ah, he's, ah, he's a, ah. He's a very devout Christian yeah. that takes any job that involves going door to door because yeah. he can then incorporate it into uh, his uh, work as a as a missionary. For, An evangelist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that is wonderful, isn't it? Eh, eh. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing. It's everything about it. Just the idea of the character. The, guy, the guy's performance himself. But yeah, great, isn't it? Have you heard the good news? <laughs> Um, in, in terms of uh, the settings as well, it's just rich, isn't it? You know, national. Uh, yeah, the national on uh, Campbell Road now. Gone, gone. There's a church now, yeah. isn't it? Which we may come back to in a later episode. Yeah. The we, Garden of Gethsemane uh, yeah. Power Church or whatever it's called. But it's just a great thing where, you know, my, my primary school is just down the road from there. So. Everything's it, filmed very, very close, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And you've also got the uh, Sundial Cafe, which is the kind of centrepiece of the Elephant and Castle shopping centre. Yeah, yeah. Which is that really odd scene where they've got a kid overdubbed by a kind of gruff man. <laughs> so strange, isn't it? Well, that was what was nice about it. Even when they did, you know, even when they came near the cliche of feral youth, it's not, you know, as opposed to other things where it's like knives and guns and horrible. It's these kids, uh, Shannon and Sean Locke, that he's bald. And he's like, no, you can't yeah. say that because I have got yeah. hair. It just turns into this surreal exchange. Yeah. And it's all the better for it, isn't it? It reminds me a bit of the way they do it in Peep Show as well. Where, um, you know, in the first episode where those kind of youths are kind of chasing around. They yeah. go, F off, clean shirt. Yeah. And they go, he's a pedo. He's like, I'm not a pedo. <laughs> you know. Rather than it being a threat of violence, it's just annoying. He's just annoying. Yeah. And when he goes to confront them, he's not scared because they are eight years old. But he's just sort of like, he wants it to stop. <laughs> and brokers an agreement with them. Just to to stop it, just because it's getting on his nerves more than anything else. Arrow! 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 Have you been disloyal? Hey. Where'd you buy these crisps? Corner shop. I knew it. They're stale. You take them back? Yeah, I'm popping out in half an hour. No, no, you've got to take them back now. I'm finishing my tape. No, you have to take them back right now, otherwise I'll eat them. But they're stale. Exactly. I don't eat stale crisps. And tell him, right, have I got mug written on my forehead? Out of date, Chris. I mean it. Get right close up to his face and let him know he's not dealing with a mug. 
I don't think he can get as angry as you can, Vince. Not about crisps. It's not about crisps! It is. Another thing filmed on the Brandon estate. The Doctor Who reboot. Never heard of it. <laughs> Any good? No. Yeah, uh, it's... <laughs> British television. Extremely course, yeah. popular. It's huge in America. It's huge over here. And it's basically a children's show that for some reason adults also watch, Steve. <laughs> you watch it, so can you explain to me why? Because it's sort of been the bane of my existence a little bit. Where uh, Lakeisha, she loves it. She watches it all the time. And it, I mean, I've only ever watched one episode. Have you all still way got through. your Doctor Who Oyster card holder? No, it was was an Oyster card with a sticker of Doctor Who on it that I wasn't allowed to remove, but Uh, that it stopped working. So now I've got one without without Doctor Who, without David Tennant. But what I will say, I had David Tennant on it. David Tennant is good, I think, is it? Yeah, you know, it's David Tennant's good, and the new guy's good as well. Christopher Eccleston again. I didn't really watch it very much, but I didn't. I don't think he was all that in it, is it? But David Tennant, I think, was uh, made a very good Doctor, but it's just not very good, is it? The dialogue's rubbish. Characters are rubbish. The stories are rubbish. You know what I mean? It's just like uh, it's, it should be on CBBC. I find it quite hit and miss. I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan. I watch bits and pieces, uh, and it's okay. I'm not uh, blown away by it. I enjoy it more than you enjoy it. In that, at some point, I might enjoy it. Yeah. But I think, uh, and the relevance to us is, of course, the fact that uh, Billy Piper Rose. Uh, lives on the Brandon estate. I've not seen the episodes all the way through, but they've been there a couple of times, haven't they? Two different doctors went there, I, met, I reckon. Yeah, I think. But, yeah. So did the TARDIS sort of crash land there at some point? Or there was some kind it's, of big kind of alien smash I think it's on the there. Christmas. I, you see, I haven't watched enough of it to know for certain, but I'm pretty sure it's the Christmas episode where, uh, yeah, there's these. Uh, you, this is going to annoy you when I say this. Is like these robot Santas that are attacking. Of course they are. Everything. <laughs> this is the thing. Every week it's Daleks and Cybermen. <laughs> like you've got this guy who um, I think I might be nicking this point of you, Steve, okay. or someone anyway. This guy he's got a time machine that can go anywhere, right? Yeah. And he only ever goes to London and Cardiff. <laughs> yeah, so it's mostly present day. That's what they, bothers I think me about should, Doctor He should Who. be going miles into the... They should do, be doing it like Star Trek, I reckon. But they also, uh, when they fancy it, they make it very clear he can go anywhere in the universe as well. And yet... Oh, I saw that episode where they were on that, that ship that I think might have even been called the Titanic. It is called the Titanic, yeah. Just abysmal, wasn't it? <laughs> Terrible television. <laughs> and I think traditionally... Uh, it was always budgetary restrictions, you know. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know. In the seventies, it was all it was uh, very simple costumes and quarries because it's easy, isn't it, to just like film in a quarry? Blake now, seven. of course, I have no idea what the figures are, but Doctor Who has got to be raking in money left, right, and centre. I, I, I don't think there's a, um, another British television show that will be pulling in as much money from America as Doctor Who. So it's it theoretically should have the budget of an American show. I mean, this is one of the things with the difference between British television and American television is that where they've got six times as many people living there, yeah. you know, you've got six times as big an audience. So if you want to make something like Deadwood, which is yeah. kind of quite um, limited appeal, should we say, you know, we need people with attention spans and stuff and people <laughs> who are willing to sort of listen to dialogue. Um, you can't you can't do that over here. Fear, I mean, you know, if you do the maths, presumably you could do it over six for the budget, which is just sort of... Uh, I think Doctor Who does have, uh, it, you know, in terms of other British... Yeah, but the, shows, but the problem is budget. not the budget, is it? 
I mean, they've no. got loads of effects and stuff. Yeah. You know, the problem is that it's just catering for. It's aimed at children, isn't it? It's aimed at like eight-year-olds. That is the core audience, yeah, essentially. Yeah, so 15 Stories, uh, I think probably my favourite thing of... Uh, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, all the things we have. And I think it's just the fact that it's so easy uh, to use the estate as some sort of crime-infected sinkhole. And that's all, you know, you're yeah. not going to... Shorthand for urban decay. Yeah, whereas with this, they've sort of gone, no, do you know what it could be? It could be anything. Because you've yeah. got that many people living there. It could Hum- be this is where human beings yeah. live. this is where human beings... And they could be... In their own four walls, they could be getting up to all sorts. And they do. Mm. A guy like... They are getting up to all sorts. But, you know, even strapping, like, matches to the window and practising your golf. Brilliant. That's, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what could be happening. Like, it doesn't always have to be gun crime. And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Hello, Z! Before we finish the show, hopefully we can finally round off some things from the last couple of weeks and we can start talking about football. (laughs) But this is a little bit embarrassing for you, Steve. A couple of things. Oh, yeah. East London 11... Yeah. Jeff Hurst. Not from East London. What? I mean, I, I must admit, I did put Jeff Hurst down. But as a West Ham fan, you should have gone, hang on a minute. He's from Lancashire. Is he? Yeah. So what we'll do, we just put Teddy Sheringham in here. Teddy Sheringham and um, Jimmy Greaves. It's not over yet, Steve. It's not over. You also missed Shaka Hislop, who was born in Hackney, and Les Seeley, who coincidentally played against Crystal Palace in the 1990 FA Cup final. Controversially. Something to do with a loan. But they both <laughs> played for West Ham as well, and they could have both been in our uh, East London eleven. In my defence regarding uh, Shaggy Hislop. It was it the accent and the fact that he grew up with Brian Lara. Yeah, if you grew up with Brian Lara, I'm not thinking he's yeah. definitely... He moved, uh, he moved to Trinidad, Trinidad or Tobago when he was uh, two, I think. Yeah. And it's still not over, Steve. South London footballers, Phil Babb. I know. And you're an Irishman. He played, he, <laughs> presumably the only South Londoner that played the 1994 World Cup. And this was pointed out by, was it your friend Brian? Was it Brian? Might not have been. Someone on Twitter. I thought it was your friend. Nah, no one I know. Yeah, Phil Babb and they pointed out someone else as well, didn't they? George and Dar, but I was aware of George and Dar. Yeah. He played for Dar, he played for Palace. But the thing is, you have to draw a line. You just can't just include all the Palace players. Because, <laughs> I mean, for long periods, pa- Palace haven't been that good, have they? Do you know what I mean? You can't yeah, just name yeah. every Palace player. Whereas yeah. Phil Babb, he played for Liverpool, yeah. and he, you know, plays four times at a World Cup, as I said. So, if just in future, Steve, if you could be a bit more vigilant. <laughs> so, as usual, we'll be putting some links on the website. Check it out: southlondonhardcore.com. Stick some videos on there from uh, some of these things filmed in South London. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at SLHC Podcast. And don't forget to leave ratings and comments on iTunes because that helps greatly.